This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. In partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we bring you our Insider Town Hall series, speaking with key decision makers in Congress and the state legislature about issues Indivisibles care about. Today, 8th CD Congresswoman Dr. Kim Schreier. As the only physician representing our state and as the only woman doctor in Congress, she joins us to talk about the COVID vaccine, what we know and don't know at this point about its distribution and its effectiveness. The Congresswoman also shares her work on a rapid home test that could be a game changer in the fight against the virus. We also discuss Indivisible's priorities for 2021 and how we can all work together to achieve them. This conversation was recorded on the evening of Thursday, December 17th. We are very excited to be bringing you tonight's Congressional Insider Town Hall. As, as we gear up for the next session, uh, regardless of what happens in the Georgia runoffs, we in Indivisible plan to be ready to advance as many of our priorities as we possibly can. And so with that in mind, we are going to be talking with members of Congress to learn what their priorities are, kind of get a, a sense for what they feel is going to be possible in 2021. And then we want to talk about how we as activists can work together uh, to help achieve common goals. Before we get started, I'm going to say it is my intention tonight to devote the last 15 to 20 minutes just for audience questions. So if you have them, please enter them into the chat bar. With that, I am so happy to introduce our guest, Congresswoman Dr. Kim Schreier. She was just reelected to a second term to represent Washington's 8th Congressional District, which spans from Issaquah in the west to Wenatchee in the east. And this is hot off the presses. She has just been appointed to the powerful Energy and Commerce Committee. We are so excited. Congresswoman Schreier, hello. Welcome to you. Thank you, Stefan. It's so good to see you. And wow, news travels quickly. <laughs> well, you know, the Internet and all. Um, and So congratulations on your reelection. Congratulations on your appointment. There's so much to talk about tonight. So much to talk about. And I just first have to say, before we even start, thank you, thank you to all of you who worked, phone banked, you know, really bent over backwards to help get me reelected. This is a, a tough district and every time is going to be hard work. And I'm just so grateful that you stood with me. And I also have to say, Stefan, the first interview I ever did when I was a pediatrician, <laughs> barely dipping my toes in the water was with you. And so you have a special place in my heart. Likewise, my friend. And I, I actually have a special question about that at the end, if we have time to get to it. Um, I should also mention, you've made yourself so accessible. You have done, I believe, 70 town halls. Am I getting the number right? So this is this 71? This is 71. That's a really good point. Yep, 71. <laughs> and I thought 70 was going to be it for for this term. Yes. Well, seven, you, you are so adept at running them that I almost feel like I could hand the microphone over to you. But uh, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and take the microphone because I have a ton of questions for you. Um, and, and I want to start by talking about the vaccine, which is top of mind for everybody, uh, which Americans have started to receive this week. And first, you know, just as a physician, I will ask you, how remarkable is it that this was developed in less than a year? Well, this is stunning. I mean, this it's almost an emotional thing for me to think about the fact that we still don't have an HIV vaccine. Uh, the fastest path ever was uh, was four years to a measles vaccine, I believe. And, uh, you know, here we got the genetic code in January and in December, we have a vaccine going into people's arms. 
And not just that, you know, the endpoint that they were looking for was to have a vaccine that would be 50 to 75% effective. We've got 95% efficacy, safe. I mean, I, I, I'm over the moon excited about this. And, uh, and I just, I hope that whatever I say tonight will help more people feel comfortable about the process. So let's just, we can dive in as deep as you want into vaccines. It, that's, you know, I live there. I'm a pediatrician. <laughs> I do actually want to take a deep dive into that. Um, and I'll just ask off the top about implementation, because we know that the Trump administration has done virtually nothing in terms of planning for the rollout. Uh, a couple questions. First of all, how do you expect it to be different under the Biden administration? And then I'll ask you as a physician in Congress, is this something that you will be involved in and or consult on? So the rollout process, I probably will not be involved in, um, but we're on the phone every week with the governor because the states are really in charge of getting things rolled out within the states. And Congress will be funding whatever is necessary to, you know, to make this all possible. And right now, you know, I have to tell you, there's, there's always going to be hiccups, but I have a sense that this is going to go much more smoothly than the testing process ever went. I think a lot has gone into this. There's been a lot of funding. The military is involved. You know, it, it's not gonna be seamless. We already had an issue today with finding out we're getting fewer doses in Washington state, but you know, we are making every effort to make sure that this is distributed equitably and it goes to the highest priority groups first. Is there any, you mentioned that the CDC uh, has cut uh, Washington's vaccines by 40%. Um, we haven't gotten an explanation yet. Have you been able to find out anything? No, but there was a pretty strongly worded statement from Pfizer saying, uh, we've got the inventory, we've got everything just waiting to go and haven't gotten an order for it. So I, I will just say, I hope things get worked out and we get more with the next shipment. But, um, you know, it, it, at this moment, we'll call it a hiccup, and I will not pass judgment. I'll just be very grateful for that we have this vaccine and that it's getting into so many so many American arms right now. Well, we know that you will stay vigilant on our behalf in Washington to make sure that uh, it uh, it rolls out here in Washington. I want to ask you about something that came up at the, the last town hall. Um, and I correct me if I'm wrong here. I believe that you mentioned that we need to have at least 70 percent participation in the in the population in order for the immunization to work. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit. You know, the number 70%, 80% is being thrown around. But I don't think anybody at this point can really say that for sure. Now we're going to get a little bit deep into vaccine here. So, we don't know yet for sure if the two the one approved and the the next likely to be approved vaccine. We don't know for sure whether those only uh, prevent the person who gets infected from having disease or whether it prevents them from spreading to others. Remember with, with coronavirus, you can have an asymptomatic case and spread it to other people. In which case, what the vaccination does, you know, if this is the case, if it only keeps you from getting sick, it doesn't stop the spread of disease. It just basically turns it from being deadly and putting people in the hospital to more like a cold or the flu, something that you can still get and pass around, but it's milder. That's a whole different scenario than a vaccine that also prevents you from spreading it to others. 
If that's the case, then what you need to get to is right around 70 to 80% of the public getting it so that the virus can't jump from person to person. Does that kind of make sense? It does. So there's some, so there's some emerging evidence, especially with the Moderna vaccine, that it does in fact um, minim, minimize the ability to transmit this. So somebody who's gotten vaccinated is not only protected themselves, but they kind of protect the people around them too, because they can't then spread it to others. And in that scenario, that's when you can talk about herd immunity, where by getting vaccinated, we protect the community. So this in my mind is gonna be a bit of a challenge from what I have observed among uh, the, the populace, and in particular, someone who was on the, the last town hall, who uh, this is a man in his 70s who was saying uh, that he believed that COVID was no worse than than the flu and kept complaining that, that we can't open everything up and, and you handled it better than I would have. <laughs> I think it was a good thing that my phone was on mute at the time. But, you know, I, I just think that it speaks to the fact that there are people who still just don't get what we're dealing with with here. And I, I would just ask you how you think we can win the PR battle here, not only just to stop the spread, but then to get to 70, 80% participation. Well, we're going to need a lot of trusted communicators out there. Uh, what I have found in my experience as a pediatrician is that a lot of people come into the office hesitant. They're not really sure if they feel comfortable with a vaccine. And remember, the ones that I was talking about were tried and true childhood vaccinations, right? But having a conversation with your pediatrician makes a world of difference. And the vast majority of those kind of vaccine questioning hesitant parents, they ended up immunizing their children. So first you need that good relationship between the physician or the healthcare provider and, and the person coming in to get the vaccine. But we also need outside influencers, right? Like let's enlist the religious community. Let's enlist our political leaders. Um, let's bring in sports figures. You know, the more people, like we've learned through this pandemic that merely laying out the science and the facts is not enough. That we really need to present a compelling case from trusted compelling people about this. And you know, I wish I could say that you just present data and everybody just says, oh, of course. Um, but in this case, there will, there will have to be, you know, a real um, a real plea from, from people and meeting people where they are too. It really begs a larger question, and you're kind of hinting around the edges of this, but I'm just going to ask anyway, because I feel that the credibility of science um, has been dealt such a blow over the last four years. And I, I wonder how you think we return. I mean, you, you are a person of science. I, I believe that you, in addition to having a medical degree uh, at Berkeley, you studied uh, uh, astrology, uh, uh, astronomy. I always get those two mixed up. You're, you're, you're a scientist. You are a scientist. And, uh, and so th how do you believe that we restore broader trust in, in science? Well, I think you ask a, a great question and I have kind of a two-pronged answer. You know, I think there's parts of our society that have decided that scientists are um, elite and not to be trusted. And, uh, you know, I think we, we probably need to set that aside for a moment because I, I don't believe that's the majority. You know, first let's invest in more STEM, STEAM education. Let's get more kids turned on to science. But also, you know, think about the fact that by living through this pandemic, in many ways, scientists are becoming the rock stars. You know, they're the ones developing the treatments out in public, talking about public health. I mean, they're rescuing us from this. If we didn't have 
certain politicians standing in the way and we let the scientists lead on this, we'd be in a much better position right now. And I think that, you know, really doing a victory lap about all the researchers, scientists who worked around the clock to bring us a vaccine in 11 months. Wow. You know, we've also seen more people, you know, enrolling in schools of public health because of this. And so sometimes these experiences are exactly what you need to really get people interested in science again. I like your optimistic take on that. And I dearly hope that you're right. Um, I want to ask about something you have been advocating, which is rapid at-home testing. Um, This would obviously be a, a big game changer while we are waiting for the vaccine to be distributed nationwide. Talk about where we are at on that process. So um, you're asking this question at a great time. So for those of you who have not heard my little spiel on this, I'm going to just give a sense of what rapid at-home testing means. Because right now, the testing that we're doing is uh, you wait until you're either exposed and you know you've been exposed to somebody with COVID um, or you have symptoms. And then you go and get a PCR test, which may not cost you anything, but it's like a one to $200 test. And you might have to wait several days to get the results. And then say you get a positive result, um, then you're probably not even contagious by that time anymore. So you're finding out kind of too late. You've already exposed a lot of people. And then a contact tracer contacts you and you have to remember who you've been around for the last five, six days. It's really tough. And by then, by the way, they've already been exposed and potentially exposed other people. So you're kind of always behind. Now, if you can do an antigen test, This is a test that is basically looking to see if you have a lot of virus in your nose at that moment, because you want to catch people who don't have symptoms before they can spread it to other people. That's the tricky part of this disease. And that's what frequent, rapid, cheap at-home testing would do. And there's a Dr. Michael Minna from Harvard who's championing, championing this. Dr. Fauci is excited about this. Dr. Collins is. I've been on many phone calls about this notion of Imagine if uh, before your child went to school every day, um, you did a little nose swab on him or her, and you knew that every other parent was doing that. And then all the kids in the class, basically, they would still wear masks, but you'd really know that they're not the super spreaders of the day. And how much more comfortable would you feel, would our teachers feel, they could make schools the safest places. You could do that at workplaces, at poultry packing plants, you name it. So where are we with this? Um, There have been about 300 tests already approved by the FDA. I was on the phone with uh, with three doctors from the FDA just today talking about, you know, if you had this test in front of you, a one to $2 test that people could use in their own homes, would there be barriers to getting it approved if it had a certain sensitivity and specificity? And, you know, would you really need to have a, a mandate that people report? And it sounds like we have a path. We have a path to get these done cheaply if we have a government that says, we're gonna buy millions of these tests if you will produce them. And that seems to be the hurdle where we are right now. So I'm excited about this notion. It would be a game changer. It would change the course of this illness. It would change being able to go out to a restaurant. I mean, really it would change everything in a matter of weeks. Is this something I, I hesitate to ask, but, you know, we, we know that the landscape is going to be changing in Washington. Um, is this something that would require full congressional approval in order to get funding for? 
So there is actually already congressional funding for testing. So the question is whether we need to specifically designate it for this or not. I, I, I guess my question would is, would you need to say, for example, the Republicans keep the Senate? Do you need to go through Mitch McConnell in order to get to Biden's desk to make something like this a reality? You know, I think that we could have this happen before Biden comes in. I mean, look, every mm -hmm. month we are in a position of losing almost 100,000 more lives. So waiting for another month, that, that's a long time. It's a lot of lives. And so we may not have to wait for that based on what I'm hearing today. Abbott just came out with a $5 test. You know, if you can do that, if you could buy them in quantity and negotiate a better price, this is something you could use every other day. And frankly, with what we're talking about with having to rescue this country financially, this investment, um, does not seem unreasonable that, you know, federal government dollars pay for these tests to put them in people's homes to keep the communities safe. So uh, it is my my current passion and I'm working on it and energy and commerce will give me an even better platform to work I, on it. I was just going to say, absolutely. This is <laughs> uh, this is moving uh, bigger to bigger and better places for, for sure. I just want to circle back. We had a, a question uh, from Aaron who asks, will children under 16 be eligible to get the vaccine? And I actually had a question that I neglected to ask earlier, which is also, will, will people who are on chemo or are immunocompromised, uh, will they be eligible to get the vaccine? Okay, so people who are on chemo and immunocompromised should be fine with this vaccine. There's no live virus in this. So I, you know, that's my doctor part speaking. Yes, that should be fine. Um, they should talk with their doctors, but that's my, my doctor answer. Um, with regard to people under 16, so here's another kind of a little bit of a deep dive. First of all, it hasn't been approved for, for people under 16. Second of all, they're like, way at the end of the line, right? We have so many high-risk people, so many frontline workers, so many people that would come first that we're first of all gonna have a lot more time to see more and more people, millions of people get these vaccines and have a better safety profile record on efficacy. And frankly, by then we'll also know if this is a vaccine that only protects the person who's getting it, or if this is a vaccine that can confer herd immunity. And I think that really informs a choice about what you do for kids under 16, because they themselves, they don't seem to get very sick from this disease. So really, you know, if it only protects the person who's getting it, you probably don't need to give it to really young people. If it confers immunity for the community, you really want to get those kids and young adults because they are the likely ones to spread it to others. So this is a wait and see, is, is, is what I'm saying. Thing. Okay. Yeah. But we should know soon. Larry Corey, a researcher at Fred Hutch, who's just amazing, a virologist, epidemiologist, vaccine researcher. Um, he is right now planning a study that will take place uh, at a university where they check this exact thing. Does it stop the spread of the illness? And given the number of people and the contagiousness, you could you get a results within probably a month. 
I want to move on and talk about COVID relief, um, but I just want to backtrack very briefly. When you were talking about uh, testing, uh, the uh, the rapid at-home testing, I uh, neglected to mention that Bellevue College, for uh, those of you watching and listening to this broadcast, has just opened up a rapid free testing site, and that is at 2645 145th Avenue Southeast Bellevue, for those of, those of us on the east side. Uh, you need to go online to make a reservation, and I believe Kat will have a, uh, a, a link for us in the chat bar. So uh, let's do talk about uh, COVID relief. It is my understanding, uh, as, as we talk about this on Thursday the 17th, that McConnell has dropped his demand for liability shields for uh, corporations, for their employees who get COVID, and the Democrats will no longer be asking for the $160 billion for state and local government. Beyond that, what can you tell us? Where do things stand right now? Uh, well, I haven't seen final language. Those They dropped those two things because those were the two that they just could not get past. And we can talk about that in a sec because they should have been able to get past that, I think. Um, but it looks like it will be something like this, around $900 billion. It sounds like there will be cash payments. My understanding is it's probably going to be $600 to low and medium income uh, people. Um, there will be some extension of unemployment, although I don't think that there is going to be enhanced unemployment, which was so important before. It's really one of those things that kept our economies afloat, that kept people whole. Um, I don't think that's going to be there. That was a trade-off. Um, there should be money for uh, vaccines, transportation, some kind of indirect help, public health to uh, to local governments, but no just, you know, open, unrestricted state and local funding. Um, and there should be PPP money in there to help our, our small businesses that are just barely hanging on if they're even still open. You have said that you didn't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. So I'll just ask you generally um, from where the Democrats started with a $3 trillion package, and now I believe it's down to uh, $900 billion or, or so. Um, what's, your, what's your general assessment of, of what may uh, finally wind up passing here? You know, my, um, my, my hope all along was that we could do exactly this, like just winnow it down to the basics. Now, my list of basics is a little different than Mitch McConnell's basics. For me, it was going to be state and local funding because of decreased revenues, not because blue states are misspending their money. Like there's all this rhetoric on the other side. No, it's that when businesses aren't working and people aren't employed, you don't have the revenue. So it was going to be that PPP money and help for people who had lost their jobs. Those were my three things. And we got close to that with this bill. Um, you know, I would have loved to have seen some, a little bit of, of threading the needle and wiggling in those two tough areas. Like, I think that if we had phrased things like, well, help to state and local governments to match lost revenue, maybe just by putting those few words on, it would have diffused the situation a little bit, right? You, you would have taken away that talking point of, this is a bailout for blue states. No, every governor needs this. Every mayor needs this. All but one in my district need this help. And I think it would have taken away that talking point. Similarly, I think you could look at liability and say, well, look, you could look at public schools and realize that there's some wiggle room there. You could look at uh, 
hospitals and emergency rooms and say, gosh, if you've got a dermatologist who's running a ventilator, maybe she should be protected because it's not her usual scope of work, but she's stepping up in this case. I just think that there are nuances where we should be able to come together and have a conversation. Uh, I think George Lakoff would be proud of, of the way that you have framed that in terms of the ability to uh, to communicate in a language that uh, Republicans honestly would understand. Um, and I should mention in terms of bipartisanship that you and Congresswoman Susan Del Bene led the entire Washington House delegation, including Republicans, in asking leadership to include protections in a future COVID-19 relief package to help unemployed residents here in the state. First of all, I'll ask you how you did that uh, with Republicans and all, but Second, um, I'll ask for some specifics. Does this mean direct aid to individuals? Is it money to states? How will it uh, how will it be apportioned? So this is a glitch. Um, and fortunately, Susan Delbene is on Ways and Means, where this glitch fix could happen. The idea was that people uh, who lost their jobs, worked in the gig economy, whatever it was, applied for unemployment, enhanced unemployment, pandemic unemployment. And they did the applications right. They did everything in good faith. But afterwards, on review, uh, unemployment might discover that they were overpaid. But meanwhile, people filled out these applications honestly. They did nothing wrong. They've already spent the money. And so to claw that back just seems unfair and unusually cruel during this time. And, you know, all of us have people in our districts who this would apply to. Now, how do we get bipartisan support? You know, this is one of those things that it's like an investment that pays off over time, right? We are all Democrats and Republicans on the phone every week with Governor Inslee and the and the, you know FEMA, you know everybody who's kind of participating in this rescue. I've worked across the aisle with Dan Newhouse on things related to agriculture, and I think when you build up that relationship over time, you build trust, and then you're willing to. Uh, come together on an issue like that, like this, that affects all of our constituents. I'm going to take a hard turn next uh, um, and and ask you about uh, Trump's moves to uh, attempt to overthrow our election, um, and in particular about the 126 House members, including Representative Newhouse and Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who signed on to the amicus brief to invalidate uh, millions of votes in states that Biden won. This was unprecedented. Um, I'll just bluntly ask you, what do you make of this move by your Republican colleagues to overturn our election? Look, these antics uh, on the part of the president to try to change the course of this, the blatant attempts to go afterwards and undermine the voters, I mean, primarily black voters in cities that would have made a difference in this election um, is awful. It, he has undermined, and he did it even from 2016, calling elections rigged, undermining confidence in our system of voting that is so fundamental to our democracy. And, and this, is, this is going to have lasting damage. I just heard some numbers today that about 85% of Republicans believe that there was fraud in this election and that it was unfair. <clears throat> Something like 85% of Republicans felt that Trump had won on election night when it clearly was very, very close, right? Um, this is really a problem and it is undermining, uh, I think, Joe Biden's ability to come forward with a real mandate that 
He is the president and we need to make a change there. Uh, I can't put myself into the minds of my colleagues who signed on to this letter. Um, it should have not happened. Uh, it should have been a fringe thing. Uh, I feel like at some point it probably got to a critical mass where they felt like there was cover and having so many numbers on there. But bottom line is that, um, you know, in retrospect, we can look at this and say, well, it's a good thing the Supreme Court slapped this down fast because it was baseless, but it is very frustrating to see an endorsement of these kind of antics. Indeed. And our, I think our, the institution of our courts did hold the line here. I, I will just ask you one more question about this, and, and that is how you feel we should be responding to this moment. Um, Biden did, he, he, he rebuked the GOP in his speech, uh, but Democratic Senator Chris Murphy went a lot further. He said on, in the Senate that if we don't stand up, that he believes that the GOP may be empowered to start stealing future elections. And in fact, uh, some Republicans have indicated they will mount a challenge to the Electoral College on January 6th. I'll just ask you, what do you think Democrats and House leadership should do here in response? It's a really hard question, right? Because um, we tend to uh, to want to seek common ground and peace, especially people like me in a in a very purple district want to find ways to work together. And these things do make it harder. <laughs> they do make it harder. And yet, you know, if we push back forcefully, Will we be making the divide in this country even larger? I mean, I think one of the big fundamental problems right now is that each side feels like if the other side wins, it's the end of our it's a, the end of our country. We just have very different definitions <laughs> of what that means. And um, what should we do? I mean, I guess my most concrete answer is get involved in the Georgia elections because if we can, uh, if we can have the Senate control of the Senate. Um, things are not going to go wildly in 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 a, in a swing to the left. We still have a lot of moderates in there who are going to hold, hold the line. But you know what we could do? <laughs> we can control the agenda. We can bring up HR1. We can end partisan gerrymandering, get big money out of our politics, have full voting rights. You know, there are things that we can do to shore up our democracy that we can only do if we win those two seats in Georgia. So if you can donate, donate. If you can write postcards, write postcards. Follow Stacey Abrams' lead here. Um, there's, a, there's a real chance. And I really think that this changes the course uh, for the next two years and far beyond. I want to talk about uh, the next two years. Uh, but first, actually, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about a couple wins in this session. Uh, as we know, the NDAA just passed. This is a national defense authorization. And you were able to get through a couple of provisions for firefighters and military families. Uh, I would love if you could just talk about that. Um, sure. So it was we got pay raises for military families, which is fantastic. Um, I want to talk about firefighters because it's really so important here in Washington state. You know, um, there's a process where uh, firefighters can get hold of surplus military equipment. That could be um, helicopters, vehicles, those kinds of things, GPS. And right now those are distributed kind of based on how savvy your fire department is, which is 
just not right. I mean, I don't want to throw Illinois under the bus or anything, but they got more than Washington State got. So um, my amendment uh, uh, is looking to make it so that need and fire risk, those things get taken into account in the distribution of these uh, this equipment. And that means more would come to Washington State, to Oregon, to California, where we really have this threat. Um, yeah, so that that is a good part of what it does. Well, we appreciate that back home, and certainly everybody who knows what we contend with here, uh, and, and you know, and how much we rely on our firefighters uh, at this uh, this time going forward uh, is greatly yeah, appreciated. Let me just say a big thank you to any firefighters listening, firefighters' families. Thank you. Uh, you put everything on the line. My goodness. I will underscore that. Absolutely. So let's move and talk about the 2021 session. And as we know, uh, as we've been discussing, there are two possible scenarios. So let's start with the more hopeful one. Let's say that the Democrats do take the Senate. Um, and if they do, you're going to have the chance to go on offense uh, for the first time uh, in your time in, in D.C. And uh, Indivisible is going to be pushing Congress to do a few things. First is to pass the For the People Act. This is H.R. 1. Um, and among other things, it fights gerrymandering, reduces corporate money in government, um, as you as you just uh, re- referred to. Uh, also to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. This is H.R. 4 to restore the Voting Rights Act and overturn laws that target communities of color. You you voted for both of these. I assume that you would support them again. Oh, of course. I mean, I think those should be the first, well, COVID <laughs> and then this, right? Shoring up our democracy. Absolutely. So the third agenda item is to grant statehood for D.C. Where, where do you stand on this? We voted for that and passed it through the House. Terrific. Okay. And then the fourth item is, uh, it's a tricky one. It is reforming the courts. Now, there are a number of proposals on the table, including term limits for Supreme Court justices, court expansion, uh, expanding the lower federal courts, instituting a Supreme Court code of ethics so that, uh, say, justices can't go out and make $50,000 speaking at a luncheon. This is all a lot. So I will just ask you your thoughts generally on court reform. So my general thoughts about the courts right now is that they're seeming very unfair and they're seeming like that to a lot of people. I mean, we saw under Obama that any any judge appointees, it was blocked by a Republican Senate. We saw, you know, a real bold attempt to fill all kinds of um, judicial seats uh, during these these years of, of Trump. And now we have a Supreme Court that has a 6-3 conservative majority that feels just very unfair, especially because we are all still mourning the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was such a champion for women and for social justice and the rights of the, of the little guy. Um, and it just feels really wrong. Um, and so what I want is a, a fair court, and I'm so glad that uh, President-elect Biden is gonna convene uh, some scholars, some people who really understand the judicial system, constitutional law, to come up with some way to make this process fair, not, not loaded toward either side, fair so that whoever is kind of feeling like they're a little bit in the minority knows that they still don't have all the decks stacked against them. Look, right now, any legislation we do, even if we have the House and the Senate and the presidency, that if that takes get, gets taken to the courts, this current Supreme Court could overturn it. We have to be mindful of that. That means that the people's voice 
is then not heard because it can be overturned by a 6-3 court. We are going to be taking questions in just a couple of minutes. So if you have questions, please drop them now in the chat box. Um, uh, I will talk next about the less hopeful scenario that the Democrats do not take the Senate. Uh, Indivisible does have uh, an agenda for that, and it is in three parts. Uh, the first is to undo the damage done by Trump. Um, of course, a lot of this can be done by executive order. But you were just appointed to the House Energy and Commerce Committee. So this covers so much, right, of where uh, Trump has wreaked havoc. Health care, climate change, environmental protections, medical research, on and on and on. How are you thinking now about your expanded role in helping undo the damage? Uh, well, my expanded role started a couple hours ago. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think about it the same way. Much of this really was done by executive order. And frankly, even the industries that regulations were taken away from, you know, like power plants didn't need to be able to spew more pollution into our air. They already had the scrubbers there to remove arsenic and mercury and heavy metals. They just have to, they're still there, right? They, like there's no objection to that. It was just, done. I don't even know why it was done. Um, same thing with fuel efficiency standards. Look, the, car companies are all on board with that. They didn't need them relaxed. They just wanted to know what the target would be and they wanted certainty. So things like that just need to be undone by executive order. Um, and then we need to make progress on really making sure that we lead the world in climate change and climate action. Um, and, and I'm excited. I am so excited about John Kerry and about, about Gina McCarthy, like the, the team is being assembled that is going to tie our responsibility to the planet, to jobs and an economy that thrives. And as we talk about the next couple of years, like regardless of which party is in the majority in the Senate, I really wanna deliver for the people in this district. Like, I think that is our goal. Our biggest goal is how do we make life better for the people in this district? How do we get post-COVID rescue phase and into a big infrastructure package to put people in the eighth district and in this country back to work? How do we make sure those are good jobs, union jobs, family wage jobs so that people are made whole and they feel like they, they feel secure in their futures, right? How can we bring down the cost of prescription drugs so that every month when people go to fill that prescription, they're not feeling pain. They're feeling like, hey, government did something good for me. They negotiated the cost of my prescription drugs. <clears throat> These are the things where I feel like we need to really invest. How can we help people afford childcare so we can get women back to work? I, I was going to ask that very question. I mean, that, is, that seems like such an imperative for the recovery. And I'm wondering, you know, what sorts of actions would you like to see around uh, increasing uh, childcare? You know what I'd like to see? A couple things. One, what we've already been working on in the education committee, which is just <clears throat> making it so it is affordable. But the second is, look what rapid, frequent at-home testing would do for childcare. That's amazing, right? It, I mean, so many of the hurdles that we have right now, whether it is school or childcare or you know, the fruit packing plants in my district that have made it so so many families are now getting hit by this disease rapid, frequent at-home testing. That's my new answer for everything. 
<laughs> I like it. It fits. Um, so agenda item two without the Senate um, would be deliver wins, deliver wins through must pass funding bills. So as we were just talking about, you got some things done through the NDAA. Um, just top of mind, what are some other priorities that you might want to push for in 2022 must pass bills? So the priorities are the same. The things that typically end up getting into must pass bills, they're not like the big, shiny, fancy, you know, bring down the cost of prescription drug things, but they could be still really important wins. Like they could be things like um, making sure we have funding for our community health centers. They could be things um, like getting in low income housing tax credits so that we can invest in housing and address our homelessness problems. So there are things that might not have all the bells and whistles, but that could make a really big difference. Child tax credit. Think about how many kids that brings out of poverty. Those are the sorts of things that we could get into must-pass legislation that might not look fancy, but could have real impact. The third agenda item is setting Democrats up to win in 2022. This is going to be tri- tricky and tough, I think, because, uh, well, we're facing uh, probably some more Republican gerrymandering. Uh, midterms are generally not a good time for first-term presidents. I will just ask you, and I think this is a, a particularly pertinent question for you as somebody who is in a purple district and you need to defend. What do you think the Democrats need to do in terms of legislative action over the next two years to keep the House and take the Senate? I think we need to be focused on the average family and what they need. The average family needs help right now with their personal family economics, their kitchen table issues. And if we're not speaking to how they can feel more economically secure, how they can feel like they're having their basic needs met, healthcare, food, shelter, feeling like they've got an economic cushion and a shot at a good future for their kids, then we're missing the mark. And so as much as many of the issues that we talk about are important, we cannot lose sight of the really basic things that people just need to feel safe. And you know, if we don't push back on what I would call crazy messaging, which would be things like defund police, like. That has no place ever being tied to our party. It is damaging. It's the wrong message. And even though the vast majority of this country believes there is a place for police reform and all communities to be treated equally, making sure there's an equal system of justice, having language like that is going to kill Democrats. So we have to be very disciplined, I believe, in how we talk about really important issues so that we don't alienate a lot of the country. It's it's a much larger discussion that I think we could have uh, about um, reform the police, defund the, the police. But I will put a pin in that and just ask you, you work very hard for the red parts of, and I will say our district, because I you represent me. I, you are my, my, my member of Congress. Do you think that the redder parts of the district and the people there understand that you work for them? Do you think they get it? I do. I mean, I hear about it. I hear about it at town halls and people back when we did them in person would come up to me and say, you know, I didn't vote for you last time, but I'm going to vote for you this time. And we haven't really looked at all the numbers yet from the election because those should be pretty telling, right? Like where did things change? Where did they stay the same? But it looks like my numbers went up in Kittitas and Chelan. 
and I outperformed other Democrats on the ticket. So that says that like, there's something about Kim where people are kind of getting used to seeing me around town and they're feeling like I'm not so scary and that we speak the same language and that I'm going to bat for them. And so I hope that message is getting through because I really want to be the Congresswoman for everybody in this district and for them to feel like they're in good hands with me. Well, you know, Jonathan Gruden asked, and we'll get into the audience questions right now, um, what we as activists can do uh, to help Democrats win. Uh, boy, what you guys did with not, well, you didn't knock doors this time, with phone banking, with reaching out, with giving that personal touch, we're going to need to do that again, big time in 2022. So please, everybody, save your tennis shoes or get a new pair. Get ready to knock a lot of doors because, I, you know, that that personal connection I think that was really missing this time in a lot of ways. It's just different. It's different to have somebody take the time to knock on your door and hand you a, a piece of paper and a little bit of information. And I, I think that is really, like, I think that was the special sauce that got me elected in the first place in 2018. We had an unmatched ground game. That's what did it. And I think that that's what we need to do all across the country. That's what they're doing in Georgia right now. And I think it's going to make a difference. So, um, you know, I don't count chickens before they're hatched, but boy, these are the things that win hearts and minds and elections. I am, my, my screen is just on you, but I am intuiting that everybody is nodding uh, in agreement uh, right now with what you just said. Um, and I certainly am as well. As a PCO, um, I really missed that personal touch of being able to go around and talk to people in my precinct, um, you know, knock on, we got some wood right there. We'll knock on that and say that uh, by this time next year, we will, or in, in the lead up to the, the election, certainly by 2022. We'll be able to do that. Um, here, so let's let's move into some more audience questions here. This comes from Black Diamond City Council member Christiana DeLeon, uh, and she asks, what federal steps are being taken to confront the growing presence of and violent intimidation by armed militias, especially when many local law enforcement jurisdictions either turn a blind eye or actively support these terror groups? Um, at, at, for those who may not know, uh, Christiana uh, fought an extraordinary fight against a white supremacist to win her place on on the city council. But she's right, though. I, I think enforcement seems like uh, the problem in a lot of instances locally. Is this an instance where you would see maybe the federal government interceding? How do you see the, the, the problem and the solution? Look, I think one problem is that the federal government was egging this on. I mean, we have a president who is encouraging these groups. They were encur He was encouraging militias and white nationalists and proud boys and, you know, having them stand back and stand by, like basically wait for my instruction, like that is inciting these groups. And I would say inciting violence. And so the first thing is to remove that stimulus, right? Let's, let's push that aside. The other thing that I think needs to be addressed is the, the issue of social media and really bringing these groups together in a way that they haven't been brought together before. There are coordinated efforts. I mean, when there were peaceful marches in Wenatchee, um, there are all kinds of Facebook threads showing that these were not one-off people who were going with their rifles to protect stores. This was a coordinated campaign online, dressing alike. I mean, that is the definition of a militia. 
And it is very dangerous when we have separate groups trying to in, enforce the law. I put my fingers in, in quotes there. And it's also particularly dangerous when you have a commingling or an intersecting of uh, official law enforcement and these militias. And I think we have a lot to be scared of. So we've done some things in the Congress. Like we, we passed a rule, uh, we passed a law that, that these groups, whoever they are, have to say who they are, have to have a badge on their arm. They can't arrive in unmarked cars and just arrest people. Um, and there is certainly more that we can do. But I think, I think that having Donald Trump out of the White House will already make a big difference in taking the energy out of this movement. I I hope you're right. I I, I genuinely do. Um, I hear you. No, yeah. I hope you're right too. We uh, were seeing a lot of gun purchases yeah. in the weeks leading up to this election, and it made uh, you and me, I, I shouldn't speak for you, it made me very nervous you can to speak think for me. about <laughs> what yeah. happens when 85% of half of this country, you know, doesn't believe that the person who won the election won it fairly. And there's a lot of guns involved and a lot of a lot of tension and a lot of emotion. And that's not a good combination. I really do hope that you are right, that uh, Trump being out of office will begin to mitigate uh, a significant portion of the of, of the problem. And we shall see. Um, I have another question here from Sally who asks if you have any legislative plans to help address medical racism, such as the higher than expected rate of amputation among black patients, many of whom are diabetic or the higher rates of black maternal mortality. So um, I, I am on the uh, black uh, maternal mortality. I can't even remember what it's called caucus with Lauren Underwood addressing exactly this issue. And you know, I um, there's a big issue with equity and healthcare. You know, part of that is the reason that we we have the Affordable Care Act and that Medicaid was expanded because by expanding Medicaid, you get more people to have their own personal doctor who they can see and can see on a regular basis. It's the reason that Lauren Underwood and I are co-sponsors of this legislation to cap premiums for health insurance so that people can access that care. And it's the reason I have a bill that, uh, that increases Medicaid reimbursement so that kids on Medicaid have more choices in who they can see for doctors and have a medical home. And you're absolutely right. You know, this is not even just about what happens uh, in terms of coverage, but also perceptions. Like we know that doctors do not believe people of color when they say they're in pain as much as they believe white people who say that. That's a real problem. <laughs> There's all kinds of bias in every realm of our society from housing to healthcare, and we've got to address it. So um, yes, we are all working on it. I don't have any particular legislation in mind, but I think one of those things is getting everybody covered. We have so many uh, questions here, and I'll try to get to as many of them as I possibly can in the time that we have left. Um, Roger, uh, and I, I suspect I know which Roger is asking this question. It's about uh, misinformation and disinformation. He's asking, uh, and this is related to our conversation uh, just moments ago, what we can do to counter the misinformation and disinformation being pushed by Fox and the Republicans and Newsmax and OAN. And I, What I worry about um, is that... 
that the, the primacy of truth has been fundamentally altered here and that we can't agree on a shared set of facts. And if we can't agree as a nation on a shared set of facts, how are we to ever come together again as a unified body politic? What, what are your thoughts? I share your concern in a big way. You know, I think that when you get into a vacuum where you only hear what you want to hear and you only believe what fits into your system of beliefs, then we have a real problem when we get this polarized and we're not looking at a common set of facts. You know, um, this is not an exact answer to that question uh, because I think, you know, fundamentally, what do you need to do? We need to educate our kids better so that they understand the difference between fact and propaganda, that they look at where facts come from, they check their sources. When you see something on your Facebook or social media feed, you know, maybe double check it. If it makes you outraged, maybe think twice before you go forward it to somebody. But you know, um, my understanding is that uh, seniors spread misinformation seven times more frequently than anybody else. And I know the AARP is working with seniors to help them discern this because if something is in print, sometimes it just seems like, you know, we, we grew up at a time when you could trust things that looked like news <laughs> to actually be news. And you can't trust that anymore. And it's very easy to fall prey to bad actors and, and even do their work for them by, by amplifying messages. And so, I think we need education for our kids, but we also need education for all of us that if you read something that makes you feel really angry, you should double check it before sending it to your best friends. I, I think that's a great litmus test. I, I, I love that. Yeah. If it, if it does give you a, a kind of a visceral response, um, check the source. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Eric Johnson asks, as a member of the uh, Agriculture Committee, what are your goals for agriculture bills that will benefit the 8th District? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, first, I always want to say, let's thank our farmers for putting food on our tables and for protecting the land that they work on. I would say that in particular about the specialty crop farmers here in Washington State. These are family farms. They tend to be smaller farms, and nobody has more interest in protecting their earth than the people who depend most on it. So some of the things I would like to do is get more money into research and science, because that is going to help our farmers weather a lot of the effects of climate change, of new pestilence, those kinds of things. And you don't can't respond to that without having the scientists doing the research now. Um, that would be part one. Part two is I would like to pay <laughs> and pay to financially reward farmers for sequestering carbon. I think that those practices like planting cover crops where you're able to, um, like, uh, like low-till farming, uh, like in, in, in like crop rotation, um, you know, if, if we can do those things, let, let's reward them for those efforts because they're paying off for all of us. And if we're gonna pay for carbon capture technology and high tech, well, why don't we pay for carbon capture low tech in agriculture? So I'd love to see that. Um, I would also love to see uh, some support for our, uh, our dairy farmers. Now that we know that there are additives you can get into, uh, into feed for cows <laughs> that will dramatically drop their methane emissions. Uh, I have a bill that is there to have more money in grants going to research for what additives will work 
and what, uh, what will have those lasting effects and then how can we get those into dairy farmers' hands for their cow's mouths. Wow, that is extraordinary because as we know, methane is one of the biggest uh, carbon trapping gases that there is and cow burps are really one of the you know, one of the biggest uh, right. offenders there. That's extraordinary. Um, Mary Hankey asks, if there is a new COVID relief package passed, will uh, self-employed and gig workers be included as before? Do you have any in- insight into that? I don't have that insight because... Um, that was part of the pandemic unemployment. And what I'm understanding right now about this current unemployment package, it is simply to extend unemployment benefits so that they don't run out at the end of the year. So, you know, again, if I had my druthers, I would bring back the pandemic unemployment that was keeping our economy afloat. It was was protecting part-time workers and gig workers, like all these groups that often get left out. So I don't have an answer for that until I've seen the language, but I'm, I'm not feeling optimistic about that part and I, and we need it. There's a similar question here uh, in terms of guardrails. Uh, comes from Ed Martinez. He asks, there's a strong correlation between the last stimulus check and a surge in the stock market, causing the stock market to be overinflated by 70 times base valuation. How will this new stimulus be different and ensure that the money goes to those who need it and not be seen as spare cash? There was a lot of stock buybacks. Are there any guardrails uh, in this in the, in the stimulus bill that you know of? I don't think this stimulus bill or rescue bill is, um, I don't think it's in a position to have that effect, but you know, Ed, you're, you're right. I mean, it's what we've really seen with this pandemic is that this is looking like a K-shaped recovery instead of a V. Like people who were doing okay before invested in the stock market, they did well because the way that the Fed was able to essentially infuse this much money into our economy was by investing in the stock market. <laughs> and so it had this consequence. That, I mean, I don't think it was an intended consequence, but that's what happened. It, it ended up kind of artificially propping up the stock market. So people who were already doing okay are still doing okay or more so. Um, and then, you know, the intended benefits for the rest of the economy, they they hung in there while that money was hanging in. But if Congress did not do its part in continuing to lend this helping hand to the economy. And I'm really worried that we're gonna end up in a worse recession if we can't get this relief package passed and more. And then frankly, when we come out of this, to come out with a big infrastructure stimulus package that gets us all back to work. I mean, ultimately that's what we're gonna need to help with income and wealth uh, inequity in in this country. We're going to end on a big question, and this is from Donald Smith, and he is asking how the nation will heal the rift. It seems impossible for that matter. There's somewhat of a rift between centrist and progressive Dems. How do we address that? You know, it does seem like there are two very uh, distinct fault lines here, doesn't it? We have a distinct fault line between moderate and progressive Democrats that will likely crack wide open if the Democrats take the Senate. And we, we, we have an ongoing uh, rift between um, certainly uh, Trump-supporting Republicans and the, the rest of us. And so I, I just will ask you maybe just sort of an open-ended question. Where would you see entering this incredibly intractable problem? So, you know, um, I think that, you know, Democrats are a big tent party, right? Like we, when we say 
that our diversity is our strength, it really truly is. But our powers are unity. This is what the speaker always says, right? That we have to embrace that diversity, the diversity in views and opinions and where we are on the political spectrum. You know, we are all Democrats and we have a common core of values. We just sometimes have different ways of getting there or different degrees to which we get there. <laughs> and, and we gotta unify if we're gonna move in the direction that we'd all like to move. And so, you know, particularly if we end up having a Republican Senate, I think we're just all gonna have to recognize that we're not gonna always get our way and we're not gonna be able to move the needle as much as we'd like, but that if we can find those partners on the other side of the aisle, we can at least push in the right direction. And I think that we've all gotta learn that. Like all Democrats have got to learn that if they've got to, if they're gonna get something done, they've gotta compromise with Republicans. And then within our own party, we've gotta recognize that to move the ball forward, we gotta be able to bring everybody along. So, um, you know, in terms of shared values, they're there. Um, Dean Phillips says, you know, progressive goals with pragmatic language is really helpful. Progressive goals with pragmatic language. Uh, I said that I had one last question for you, and I do, and then I will uh, let you uh, return to your evening. And thank you so much for your time. This has just been extraordinary. Um, you know, you had mentioned at the top that uh, you were, uh, that our show, my show, was, was the very first media interview that you did. And I've had the extraordinary privilege of watching you uh, go from somebody who's running for office to being now a two-term uh, congresswoman. And just the, the trajectory and the evolution um, is extraordinary. And, you know, you had never held elected office before. I'm wondering for you personally, what has the process been like over the last couple of years? Oh, well, gosh, just the just the process of it being a public presence. I was thinking as you were saying that, you know, I was thinking, gosh, I wonder what Stefan thinks. Like, the core of me has not changed. Like, I'm still exactly the same person. You seem like um, it, I, yeah. I am exactly the same person, but I'm so much more comfortable speaking to large groups. A pediatrician talks to a group of maybe three, four, you know, if you've got a really big family, maybe you'll have eight people in a room. And so I had never spoken publicly, like I had never been on radio or anything like that. Um, it's been nice to feel more comfortable in my skin and to be able to feel that close and familiar with a large group. Um, Cause I, I, I feel like the difference is not so much in, you know, where I stand on the issues. It's really just on my comfort discussing them with larger groups of people. So thank you for giving me that opportunity oh my goodness. a couple of years ago. And, you know, I look forward to now being able to very genuinely speak with people from all parts of the political spectrum to just move that ball forward and deliver for the people in the district and people in the country. I will, I will just close by saying I am very, very grateful to have you representing us. I really am. And I, I, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for taking the time tonight. Um, we are looking forward to, no matter what happens, uh, a, a productive uh, 2021. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday. And it's just terrific to see you. And I, I hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you, Stefan. It is wonderful to see you. It is wonderful to see my friends at Indivisible. Um, and yeah, just always a pleasure and frankly, just an honor to represent all of you. And I will always try to, to do my very best. So thank you. Happy holidays to you. And my goodness, let's, let's say goodbye to 2020. Shall we? Uh, I'm 
Yeah, <laughs> we're all anxious to put it in the rear view mirror, right? All right, take good care. My thanks again to Kat Pipkin, Julian Gievsky, Nina Mosavi, and Louise Pate. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.